everything God's got for us. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, if you've got it. Um, you can turn there into, in your scriptures or in your electronic device. We'll have it up on the screen for you if you don't have that. Um, as we continue to walk through just the treasure, quite frankly, that Hebrews has proven itself to be, um, he, treasure and challenge, both. Uh, we will be taking the Lord's Supper uh, at the end of our worship time today, so if you're online, you want to make sure you get your stuff ready for that. And if you're in the room, we have the little uh, drive through communion cups for you. And if you didn't pick one up, you can pick those up out just right outside. The ushers can help you uh, get that if you'd like to. So again, Hebrews chapter uh, 11, the very end, and then we'll go into chapter 12 today. Uh, on your way out, when you go out, you'll walk out these doors and you go out through the garden center. Uh, there's a table right beside the door that has the devotionals on it, the, the next quarter's worth of devotionals. Those ought to begin like Tuesday, I think, whenever September 1st is. Um, so you want to make sure you pick up one of those uh, on the way out. Pick up multiples if you'd like to have them and give them to people or take them to your, to your work and make them available for people. Man, feel free to do that. Um, but those are out there on the table, so grab those on the way out. Uh, this last week, I want to tell you that we made tons of deliveries um, uh, of food and school supplies to, um, uh, to life's purpose. Um, then we did backpacks full of school supplies out to Jenny Lane. Um, and uh, we provided uh, Chick-fil-A as they're going through their um, renovation out here in, in Rosenberg. Uh, we partnered with them, and we provided all their employees lunch one day. Um, and so it was a busy week um, of ministry, and you guys have made that happen um, by your faithfulness, making sure that you, that you give during this time. Um, those kinds of things have happened. There's a lot of other stuff in your worship guides, man. Take the time. If you didn't get a worship guide, there's a little QR code probably on the chair in front of you. You can scan that. Um, and that'll let you know everything that's kind of going on um, around here right now. I want to remind you that um, I think it's September 13th on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, we're going to have out at, at our house, we'll have a, a drive-by reception for Sam and Lauren Wu. Sam and Lauren um, have joined us on church staff. And uh, uh, today they're excited about it. We'll see what happens at the end of the week if Sam's excited about it at that point. But um, right now they're happy to be here. Um, and we're happy to have them. Um, so uh, we're going to have a reception for them. And there's, there's gift cards. You know, when you move, it's expensive. And just getting established in a place, you know, is kind of hard. So we want to bless them. Um, as they uh, join us here uh, at our church. And so there's a list online of those, those uh, gift cards that you could pick up for them and then drive by and either throw it out the window at them or, you know, fist bump them or something um, that afternoon at our house. So Sam and Lauren are actually right over here. You guys just kind of wave. Um, this is Sam and Lauren, and uh, we're excited to have them here with us. And you'll get to know them. They're going to be going to life groups or maybe joining your Zoom meetings over the next couple of weeks to just get to know people. Um, and uh, so you'll have plenty of opportunity to get to know them uh, in the weeks and the months ahead. We're excited to have them. Um, so I did put here, I don't know if everybody can see that, a pair of running shoes, okay? And we'll talk about these in a minute. I didn't know this. There's a word for people who love uh, shoes, caliophile. Um, and it, it goes back to an ancient um, Latin word, actually, but it's caliophile. We call them sneakerheads, right? Uh, people who love shoes. I married one. Um, not quite a Mel DeMarcos, but pretty close. <laughs> Old enough to know that. She actually has a shoe museum now, <laughs> a Mel DeMarcos. So she's not quite that, but she loves shoes. Um, we have two offspring who apparently inherited the gene. They love shoes also. Um, so we're going to come back to shoes um, as we go through our time today. Um, we have been walking through Hebrews 11 throughout the whole summer, the entire summer. Uh, we've walked through this uh, chapter of this great book. And we've been trying to 
tell you or explain to you um, what the purpose of all these people are. Um, that all these, these people that are listed, either by name or by category, um, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, they have been listed there, mentioned there on purpose for a reason, and they're there to tell us what faith looks like. Okay, So in Hebrews 11.1, 1, we kind of get a, a definition of faith, but if you ever tried to read it and really understand it, it, even that's hard, you know, when you try to understand what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. And so the author, I think, knows that, so he's like, let me give you some examples so you, you see what faith looks like, right? Um, and so the whole chapter 11 has been just let me describe to you what it looks like to be faithful um, and to have trust in God. So I'm going to run through, I think, uh, the four things that I think we've repeated over these, these uh, last couple of months, but also that I think summarize what chapter 11 is trying to tell us. So first, first of all, faith is believing uh, what God, or that God is telling you the truth. Faith is believing that God is telling you the truth. Pastor Jared introduced that early in the summertime. I, I want to come back to it. Um, so the, the very first thing you have to ask yourself as you think about faith is, do you trust that God is telling you the truth? That God has spoken in a way that we can clearly understand it's very plain, not only here, but also through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he has already spoken to us, and he's telling us the truth about things, that he's not playing a cat and mouse game with you. He's not playing hide and seek with you. He's not speaking in Chinese riddles and hoping, hoping you figure it out. He's spoken very plainly, very clearly, and you can trust him, do you? Second thing, faith is living like God is telling the truth. We talked about this last week, that you can believe God is telling the truth, but then not live like it. So are your actions matching up to what you say uh, you believe God is telling you the truth about? So believing God's telling the truth, living like God's telling the truth. Faith is trusting God to be faithful to his promises. So this is more of a future look. All these people we've seen in Hebrews 11 have a, a, a view toward the future. And they believe God has made promises about things that haven't happened yet. And they're lining up their lives to match up with things that they have never seen. Are you trusting God that he will be faithful to his promises even if you never see those things come true in your lifetime? Last thing, faith is making value judgments today based on God's character and promises. There are things you should count as important. There are things that you should say are valuable to you, which means that that impacts your money, your time, your energy, your resources, what you do with your family, what you don't do with your family. All kinds of things get impacted by this idea. They're value judgments so are you making value judgments, daily value judgments, based on God's character, based on God's promises? That's what we've seen throughout the, the, the uh, chapter 11, through the study that we've had over the summer. And I wanted to kind of summarize it as all these people have been explaining to us through their lives what faith is. The other thing that we've seen is that they're all pointing us to Christ. And Hebrews 11 has made that really clear. Matter of fact, Hebrews 11 is super important um, when you try to understand how people in the Old Testament were saved. I'm just going to throw that out there as a teaser. You need to look at that. But it, it, what we're seeing here in chapter 11 is that all these people, not only are they evidences of like a general faith or the idea of faith or the concept of faith, a specific faith, it says repeatedly that these people were seeing Christ. That from the Old Testament, these thousands of years, a couple of them before Christ, are, are placing their faith in the person of Christ. All of them are pushing us to Christ. 
Abraham's not saying, look at me. Matter of fact, I would, I, would, I would dare to say that if Abraham or Moses or Enoch or any of those people were here right now, they would say, I was a total screw-up. <laughs> right? I messed it up more than I got it right, but I trusted God. You trust God. None, none of these people are in Hebrews 11 saying, look at me. They're all pointing us towards Jesus to put our eyes on Christ because the goal of the Christian life is, is nothing less than looking like Jesus. This is the whole point. Right? That God would save us from our sins, that we would join him for eternity in heaven, and that we would look like his son. That we would take on the righteousness of Jesus and the characteristics of Jesus Christ. The goal of our walk with God is to look like Christ. The Christian life is going somewhere. We're headed somewhere. So that means every day you have to ask yourself the question, am I any further along than I was yesterday? Am I any further on towards Jesus than I was yesterday? You, you should ask yourself that question every day. And if you're going to travel a long way with Jesus, you've got to travel light. And we're going to look at that hardcore today. If you're going to walk with Jesus, man, you're going to have to travel light. If we hope to go far with him, there's some things on this planet that we're going to have to let go of. Habits, maybe enjoyments or relationships or dreams Things that would weigh you down and tie your heart to this place. Because the goal always has to be dead center of our vision, which is to look like Jesus Christ. To become like Christ. So that's what we're really going to spend our time on today. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Probably a very, pretty, fairly well known, I think, a really well known text. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run the race with endurance or let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who has endured so much hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not Grow weary and lose heart. I could literally do four weeks of messages on these three verses. Oh, there is so much in here, but I'm going to do my best to do just 30 minutes, okay? Um, so there's a lot in these verses here. Um, the first thing I wanted to kind of point out, and I want you to really understand here, do you see how many what we would call imperatives, commands, how many commands are in this verse? So here's your little grammar lesson for the day. Go look at the text, put, pull it up on your Bible, look in your paper version, and I want you to just maybe highlight, underline, do a little old K. Arthur stuff, circle the verse, the verbs kind of a thing. I want you to go in and I want you to look and see just in these verses how many commands there are. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Okay? There are tons and tons of commands in these fairly verses. He says, take these things off. Shed these things in your life that keep you from having Christ at the center of your heart, the center of your eyes, the center of your heart's attention, your mind's attention, your heart's affection. He did not say, this was curious, he didn't say, hey, you know what, I, I know you wish you were the firstborn or that you were the favored child. Lay that aside 
and pursue Christ. He didn't say, uh, I know your parents didn't love you very much, or at least you don't think they did. I know you didn't come from the greatest socioeconomic background. I know you didn't have a dad in your life. I know you were unjustly terminated at your job. He says, lay aside every weight, every sin, every encumbrance. You know what this means? This means that those things are yours to discard. We feel dominated by them. We feel like that they rule over us. We feel like these things can't be let go. I have to carry my cross. We use that language about sinful things. You ever notice that? Anyway, I don't want to go up on that. But these, this scripture here says, no, 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 these aren't things that own you. These are things that are yours to discard, to let go of, to, to put behind you. And we're commanded to do those things. So what do you need to discard? And I want to talk about sin specifically. What parts of sin or the enjoyment of sin or the effects of sin do you need to put aside? Here's what I'll tell you, man. Your shame has been paid for in Jesus Christ. Some of us are just dominated by shame, by the things we did maybe pre-Christ or the things that we've done after we've come to know Christ that aren't very Christ-like, that we struggle with, those besetting sins that we have a hard time kind of having victory over. Those things, that shame that you feel, that's been paid for in Jesus Christ. You can put that away. Some of us have regret and pain. We've, we've actually inflicted harm on, on someone else or, or maybe even our own hearts. Um, we've hurt ourselves because of our sin. If you're going to read Hebrew or Isaiah the way that I think you're supposed to read Isaiah, you know what it says? It says that that's been paid for on the cross. If you want healing for your soul, it's happened on the cross. You don't have to be dominated and defined any longer by the pain and the, the regret that you have from things in the past. Guilt, guilt and shame are not the same thing. You understand that? And I'm not talking about perceived guilt or assumed guilt. I'm talking about real guilt. When you've done it and you know it, right, you're guilty. You don't just feel guilty, you are guilty. You can put that aside. That's a result of sin. There is no condemnation, therefore, in Christ Jesus, right? So we take that guilt of the past sins that we've done, the guiltiness that we feel, we can lay that aside. Take that off us. We don't have to be ruled by that anymore. And then, maybe more amazingly, is we have the power to overcome sin. Now, not perfectly. We're not old school Methodists here, okay? We're not going to say that we can just completely overcome sin in this lifetime. We're not perfectionists. But we are going to say that you do not have to be ruled by sin every day, nor to the same degree or in the same ways that you were yesterday. You and I have the power to overcome sin. Lizzie, do you have that, that verse we put up there, 1 John 5, 4? Can you all read this with me? I know you're behind your mask, but we can read it. If you're online, read it with us. Ready? For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You need to remember, this is a memorizing verse. When sin is in your life and there's a sin that the enemy says you'll never overcome it, this one's going to own you, this is the one you're never going to beat, you have no hope, you're just going to have to die to get over this one. This is the one you pull out. This is the one you pull out. You can overcome the power of sin, not the presence of sin, but some of the power of sin, you can overcome it now. That is part of what we've been given at the cross. You can put aside, you can discard the sin that weighs you down to keep you from turning your eyes toward Christ. That's really what I want to spend time on. There were so many things I could have 
talked about today. This is the one I want to spend time on today. I want to have a little discussion here about how do I look at Jesus? This, this verse, it's very, um, it has all these commands and it sort of uh, peaks really at the place where it says to fix our eyes on Christ. Take aside the encumbrances, take away the sin, cast these things off, run your race, fixing your eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's the peak, that's the, the, the penultimate part of this verse. How do I do that? How do I look at Jesus? First thing, I'm going to run through about five things here. First thing is this. In, in chapter 11, you look at these people, which we should. We should look at Abraham, Sarah, and David, and, and Jeremiah, and all these people that are mentioned by name, and then these people that we don't get their names, but we see what they did. We should look back at them. We should. We should learn some things from them. We should see their, their, their example of faith, the inspiration of faith that they give us. But we have to stare at Jesus. We have to stare at Christ to fix our eyes on him. So just for context, yes, we should look at these people and go, wow, that's amazing faith. Wow, that's really inspiring. Wow, that's really encouraging. I want to do a Bible study about David. Man, that's great. But David's not the end. Sarah's not the end. Abraham's not the end. They are pointing you toward Christ. So look at these people, but stare at Jesus, okay? Now that can go even in our practical daily lives. I've had heroes of the faith. I don't know if you have. I have. I've had heroes of the faith. People in flesh and blood. There is a man that if he walked in our door right now, like I would sit down and wipe his feet and ask him to teach me the Bible because he's amazing. He's incredible. So some of us have those kinds of people in our lives. And as tempting as it is to put my eyes on him and his wife and say they're an incredible example of what I would like my life to be like, I have to stare at Jesus. I have to take my eyes off of them and stare at Christ, right? So that can be personal or it can be this historical look at people. Secondly, I have to turn away from other things. It doesn't work well in the English. It doesn't translate well, or maybe they've just not translated it very clearly. Um, but this idea of turning our eyes toward Christ or fixing our eyes on Christ, in English it sort of misses um, what it's saying, I think, in the, uh, in the original language. It means... Really, it means to turn away from something to look at something else. To fix your eyes on something, to quit looking at this and to start looking at this, and then to keep looking at that thing. That's the idea in this, in this verse. So it's not just turn your eyes to Christ, say, hey, Jesus looks beautiful, and then kind of look back. It's to intentionally turn away and to look at him. Not just to look to something, but turning away from something. Something that probably our minds and our hearts are already locked onto. And I'm really going to hit that here in a second. It's not the passing. God's not worried about your passing glances. He's worried about the things that you get locked onto. That the radar of your heart goes dee 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 and just zeroes in on. That's what he's talking about. That I have to consciously turn away from that and turn my attention, my affection, my passion, my dreams, my loves towards Christ. Turn our hearts, affections, our passions away from what we would say are rival attractions. And to deliberately look away from those things towards Jesus. We are built to focus on something as the center of our world. You need to know that about yourself. You are designed to have something be the center of your world. Theologically, we're going to say you're going to worship something. 
which is exactly what he's talking about here, just a different language. You are going to put your heart on something. And we're designed to do that. It's not a flaw. That's not the character flaw, right? We're designed to put our eyes on something, to worship and to love something. Our problem is, is that it's not naturally Jesus. It's not naturally God. That's our problem. So looking at Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, means inevitably that we have to look away from something else or someone else to put our eyes on Christ. There are people who hear this language and they hear people like me maybe say these kinds of things and like, man, God is so selfish. God is so stuck on himself. Why is he constantly telling us that our glory is to be seen in him and we're supposed to reflect on his glory and meditate on his beauty and what's his deal, right? It's because God knows that whatever you look at, whatever you fix your heart's love, passion, and attention on will determine how you run. That will determine how you handle difficulties, how you handle prosperity. will be determined by what you've placed your heart's affections on, what you've put your heart's attention on. God knows that about us. And he also knows that it's only by staring at Jesus that we can get to the place that's best for us. Because where we look is where we go. We become like the thing we worship, and God knows that. Right? Number one cause of teenage uh, uh, accidents right now isn't just that they're bad drivers. What is it? It's distracted driving. Where are their eyes? It's on a screen. And as they get distracted, they taught you this in driver's ed. At least they did when I took it. Wherever your eyes are, that's where the car is going, right? Look down, you're going to do that. You look over here, you're going to do that. We know this physically about our bodies. Same thing is true about us spiritually. Where your heart's attention is placed, where your affection is placed, what you worship is where you're headed. And God knows that about us. Are there things in your life today that you are fixated on, that fill your mind, that you need to turn away from and turn towards Jesus instead? You're like, well, I don't know, Pastor Joe, how do I know? Well, I'll give you just one diagnostic question. When you're going through difficulties, what fills your imagination? When things get hard, what fills your heart? When you're afraid, what comes up? Whatever that is, that's probably what you're fixated on. That's probably where your attention is placed. That's probably what you're loving. That's probably what you're running toward. Unfocused eyes lead you to wandering and meandering. Focused eyes leads to a fixed destination and a determined journey. My grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, was a pilot, flew end of World War II, and then he continued to fly after that. When I was a kid, he would take us up in this little piper, little red and white piper. I remember that. It was a four-seater. And I'm like 10, and he would let me fly, which I don't know what he was thinking, right? But he would give me the wheel, right? And it was amazing and empowering and terrifying all at the same time. And this, I've told you before, but my family calls me Jody, and he would say, Jody, he goes, you look at the horizon and don't look anywhere else. If you keep your eyes on the edge of the earth, that's where you'll go. That's what I'm talking about. What is it that fills your vision? 
And wherever you have your eye set, that's where you're headed. Turn away from other things. Look at people from the past for inspiration. Stare at Jesus. Turn away from other things. Third thing, how do I look at Jesus? And I, I started to think, well, in what way should I see Jesus? His beauty has to overwhelm me. I, I don't look at things that aren't attractive to me. I don't mean that in a weird way. I don't look at things that aren't attractive to me. I don't look at things that don't draw my attention there. I have to see Christ as being more beautiful, more glorious, more incredible than anything else. So what is this verse telling me about how to see Jesus, right? How to perceive him when I look at him. Well, it talks about him being our pioneer, author, the author and finisher of our faith. Most of our, our verses probably say that. But we could use the word pioneer. Matter of fact, it might even be better to use that word. Author, leader, the founder of our faith. Jesus is the one who has shown us exactly what faith and faithfulness look like. If you want to know what it looks like to be faithful, to be a human being on this earth, to suffer, to, to go through pain, loss, disappointment, um, to betrayal, you know, anything that you're going to walk through in life, look at Christ. He has shown us, he has blazed the trail for us, he has pioneered what it looks like to follow, Christ, or to follow God in faith. He's our forerunner. Not only is Christianity named after him, we're going to follow where he has already gone. Sometime look up John chapter 19. Don't do it now, but just look it up. This is the end of Jesus' life. And I want you to look at what he says about what he's done. He says things like, um, I, can't, he goes, I, ex I did exactly what the Father told me to do. I did everything the Father has, come, has told me to come and do. He says, I have brought God glory by completing the work that you gave me to do. Which, by the way, this is before the cross. So he's actually looking ahead at the cross that hasn't happened yet. And he's like, I, I am so confident that I will be faithful to this, that I can look ahead and say, I will complete the work that I've done to the point that I can talk about it in past tense. I can look in the future and say, I'm going to walk with God. I'm going to trust his plan no matter how terrible it might be, how hard it might be. And I'm so confident that I will walk with him, I'll say, I've already completed this. I've already done this. I think it's really important to kind of have that in our heads. He's faithful on the cross when he's tempted to come down. He's faithful uh, to death and then beyond death, right? He's faithful for the whole thing. That's what it looks like to walk with God. Are you tired? Have you lost a lot? Do you have more loss coming in your life? You know it's coming, like you can see it. Are you, are you trying to navigate success in life, which isn't always easy either? Jesus has walked before us. He has set the pace for us. He has shown us exactly how to do all of that. In some ways, that's sort of some of the point of the incarnation, of him coming to be and live in a human body. It's to relate to us, to die in our place, to show us what it looks like to be faithful for an entire lifetime. That's part of why he came in a body, was to show us those things, to set the pace for us, to be our example, the pioneer. Next thing, he is the perfecter. How else should I see Jesus? He is our perfecter, okay? So that means two things, I think. One, Jesus lived perfectly, and his perfection is not spiritually, not symbolically, it is literally given to us. The righteousness of Jesus is given to us so that we can have a relationship with God. He is our perfecter. 
his rightness with God becomes our rightness with God. And that means this, that when you trust Jesus, when God looks at you, and you're trusting Christ to forgive you of your sins, uh, to get you to God, um, to, to redeem your soul, when God looks at you, he sees you through the lens of Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ in you because he is your perfecter. And then the other thing I think that means is this. Jesus doesn't just save you and then give you a pack of like supplies and say, good luck. <laughs> you know, good luck with that. I'll see you when you die. You know, like that is not the way this works. He's not just putting us on this, this road and pointing the way and say, I hope you get there. He finishes, he perfects his work in us. What is that work? Well, obviously, I think one is to get us to heaven, right? He is the perfecter of our salvation. He ensures that we get to heaven. Not our faith, not being good, not going to church, not being religious, not doing rituals. That doesn't guarantee our salvation. Christ guarantees our salvation. His work guarantees it. So he perfects us in that way. Um, he transforms our character. He changes our desires. Right now I'm saying stuff and you're like, I don't want any of that. Christ can change what you want. And the desires of your heart, they completely change. He will fill up your empty soul. He will perfectly complete you. Perfectly. He is the perfecter of our faith. That's how I'm supposed to see him. So turn your eyes to the perfecter of our faith. And then verse 3, I would say this, it's that it basically is talking about our passion, that with devotion and commitment, we are supposed to look at Christ so that we won't falter. So the author isn't telling us, it'd be a good idea if you looked at Jesus. The author is telling us, he's like begging us at this point. This is chapter 12. We've, got, we've come a long way in this book, and the entire book is pointing us to Christ. He's like, listen, I know your life is hard, and I know that you feel like giving up. Don't give up. Put your eyes back on Christ. Take your eyes off the pain and the suffering and the loss and the difficulty. Take your eyes off those things. Put your eyes on Christ. He will finish his work in you. He has shown you how to do it. Not just these people, but Jesus himself. And he will complete perfectly what he has begun. Put your eyes on Christ with love, devotion, and passion. He's begging us to be fully devoted with our eyes on Jesus Christ. Now that sounds great and super churchy, and I'm really glad that we got to talk about that, <laughs> okay? The real problem is this. That's sort of the ideal. Here's the problem. The, the problem with us is, is that something has already captured your eyes. There's not one person in this room that your heart isn't already given to something, because like I said, God made you that way. You're already made to give your heart to something. And capture your eyes' attention. Something's already got you. Something has already got your heart's affections right now. Something already has your imagination. Something already has the eyes of your heart. Can you be honest enough? Can you just ask the Lord, man, reveal to me what this is? What is it that already has my heart? Can you see it right now? Maybe some of you, this wasn't hard at all. Literally, can you see it in your mind's eye? Wow, that's what's got me. That's where my heart is. This is where my attention is, my affection, my passion, my deepest love is actually here. And you can kind of see it in your eye. What I want to tell you is, and we've seen this over and over again, is that God has spoken about that. He's already talked to you about whatever that thing is or that person is. And he will be true to his promises 
about that thing or that person. God has already spoken to you about that thing or that person. And he has made promises about it, and he'll be faithful to those promises. Whether that's food, or transportation, or housing, or work, or your advancement in your career, or your children, or happiness, or future, or money. He has already spoken. Hebrews chapter 12 is saying, will you look to Jesus about those things, or will you continue to look at those things by themselves? Will you trust what Jesus has already said about that thing that's captured your heart's attention, turning your eyes toward him, or will you continue just to stare at that thing or that person? We love that thing. That's the, this is the real struggle, right? We love it. Whatever it is, we love this. We want it badly. Don't we really love it? We really want it. Will you trust that Jesus is better than that? And I'm not saying it's not awesome. Some of the stuff that we want, some of these people, these relationships we want in our life, they're awesome. But man, the whole book of Hebrews is saying Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Over and over and over and over again. It's not just theological stuff that Jesus is better than. He's better than anything you put your heart's attention on. Anything. Will you trust him for that? How do I change the focus of my eyes? Okay, Pastor Joe, I really want to do this. It's hard, and I've already got my attention here. How do I do that? You have to immerse yourself in Christ. Immerse yourself in Christ. Most of us piddle around with Christ. We play around, right? It's the friend on Facebook that we haven't seen in 15 years, and we just start up a conversation, and we talk to him again, and then we don't talk to him again for another 15 years. Most of us just play around with our walk with Christ, our, our relationship with him. We have to immerse ourselves in Christ. In high school, I didn't play on my high school team. I, I really did, just, just didn't like my high school at all, actually. But in high school, I played on our tennis team at school, and then I started to play. I got hooked on basketball. Matter of fact, it was about the time I started to date Mindy. There's a big story behind that. But I started playing basketball, and I played, we played all the time. Right after school, we would go over to the boys' club. We would play over there. We'd play outside. We'd play in the rain. We played in the snow. We played at dark. We'd get our headlights on and turn them on and play at nighttime on these terrible steel rims, you know. We played all the time to the point that by my junior year, senior year, I would fall asleep in fourth period every day. This was like my routine. My senior year, I'd fall asleep in history class because I could do history uh, without thinking about it. And while I'm sleeping on my desk, I would start to dream of basketball. Have you ever done something like that where you do, you're so into something and it starts to just infiltrate what you're thinking about while you're asleep? Where you're sprawled out on a desk and then you, I, I would jump because I'd be dreaming about something and I would just uh, like have a spasm all of a sudden on my desk. Because basketball was just all I wanted to think about. It was all I wanted to do. To the point we got so nerdy, we started drawing up plays. We, we picked teams while we were at school. We would pass notes before we had phones. We'd have to pass notes to each other. We'd pick teams and then we'd Hey, these are the first three plays we're running. And we would diagram plays. We were so nerdy. But we played a lot of basketball. Just got consumed with it. It ate me up. It's all I wanted to do. It captured my imagination. I immersed myself in what I loved. How do you change your eyes' attention? How do you change your heart's affection? You have to immerse yourself in it. And I do think that there may be a bit of a cause and effect that you can immerse yourself in Christ and some of your love follows. Maybe not totally, but some of it will. 
but you immerse yourself in Christ, like binge-watching a show and being consumed with it all the time because you've just filled your mind, right, with eight seasons of Lost. That's all you can think about. Where's the island now, right? That's all you can think about. Uh, it can be regrets from the past, or it can be a preferred future that hasn't come true yet. Are you immersed in God and the things of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit daily by an act of your will? You do not trip into this kind of Christianity. You choose it. Am I, am I immersed in God? How do I do that? And some of you, here's your solution. I'll get, I know, I got it. I'm going to immerse myself in God. I'm going to give God one and a quarter hours of my life every Sunday, and I will be immersed in God. The other 166.75 hours of the week, I'll do what I want to do. But man, on Sunday morning, I am in for like an hour and 25 minutes. I'll, I'll immerse myself probably 42 times a year. I'll, I'll actually do it 42 Sundays a year. I'll just, I'm immersed, man. That's not immersion. That, that's putting your toe in the kiddie pool. Even if you're here 52 weeks a year, and that's it, you're just barely dipping your toe in the water, man. You have to set out to immerse your things, your mind and your heart in. God, I'm not going to go through the ways that we do that here, but I could. We don't, I don't schedule things to keep you busy or to fill up my calendar or to justify my job. We put things on the calendar so that you will learn to look at and love Jesus Christ. And he will become the most treasured thing in your life. So there's tons of stuff that we do here. Now you can start to do it on your own, serving someone. I would say almost somebody, somewhere, anywhere, serve someone. Give yourself away to someone. I rarely feel as close to Christ as I do when I'm just working hard for somebody else. Mentor someone. Ask the Lord to bring you someone to walk with. Fasting. Well, we don't do that here. Food's super important to us. Fasting. Doing your job with excellence and integrity for the fame of Jesus Christ. Guys, what are you doing 50, 60 hours a week? You're working. Are you doing it in a way that it brings attention to the honor and the name of Jesus Christ or so that you're awesome and get a promotion? You want to immerse yourself in Christ? Do your job for Jesus. Immerse yourself in the things of Christ and the Holy Spirit and God. Pray for your one. Has your one kind of dropped off your radar? Put that one back at the top of your prayer list, man, and start praying hard for them again because that is, you're close to the heart of God when you want somebody to come see Jesus as Savior. Pray for your one. Reach out for your one. Invite them to come here online, whatever it is, but just be in your one's life. We have prosperity, which we talked about last week. That keeps us from turning our eyes toward God. I think the other one that we battle with now more than ever is our access to media. Our access to media is another adversary as we try to change our eyes, where our eyes are focused. We may not want to watch the news, but it's like almost impossible to avoid a news feed somewhere. It's almost impossible to do it, just the, in, the sheer amounts of information that we're getting. So the availability is a problem, but it's not the total problem. Here's the real problem. It's that we welcome in all this information without one iota of discernment or evaluation, and then we just binge on it. If it comes across my phone feed, it must be true. I will then go down the rabbit hole and read every news story that comes out about that. Every headline. That's the worst part, is that we just read the headlines. 
and we just consume and consume and consume and consume and we don't discern and we binge on it and our eyes get focused somewhere else. What, what regular rhythms of life do you have that keep your eyes off of Christ? That is a very, I don't know, another practical question to ask you. What, what regular rhythm do you have in your life that keeps you from focusing on Jesus? Now, if you're super puritanical, you're going to say, well, everything that's not in church. Don't do that. Let's be in the world, but not of it, right? So we want to interact with the real world, not be consumed with it. What regular rhythms do you have that help keep your eyes off of Jesus Christ? What rhythms can you adopt that would keep your eyes on Christ? That's the flip side of that question. How did Jesus treat people? How can you treat people? What did Jesus say to you from his word on Thursday? What might Christ say to you from his word tomorrow? Are you immersed in the word? What music, this is simple, what music did you listen to this last week? Did any of the music that you put into your mind this last week, because like for me, it's almost 24-7. If I'm up and around, music's playing somewhere, okay? And I know a lot of us are like that because it's so uh, accessible to us now. So what music did you listen to this last week? Did any of it lift up your mind and heart to Jesus Christ? Any of it, any of it. Did, did anything you put into your head lift your eyes above watermelon sugar or WAP or rain on me? Or is that all you have going in your head and your heart? Is that it? Nothing raised your eyes just a little bit in your music to immerse you in Jesus Christ. Now we need grace and mercy and power. We can't do this on our own. We're not going to go back and read it, but verses 39 and 40 of chapter 11 kind of talk to us about that. God's got a work he's going to complete in us. So we need his grace to do this in us. But man, there's a lot of daily choices we can make. We want to turn our eyes toward Christ. How do I lose my race? We've got to do this and be done. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask the band to come on up so we can be ready for the end here and do communion together. How do I lose my race? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you would like to not be successful in your race with Christ? I don't think anybody would like volunteer for that or raise our hands for that. We want to finish our race. How do I lose my, how can I guarantee that I won't win my race, run my race the way that God wants me to? I'm going to run through three things. One, don't pick up on the faith from the faithfulness from those who have gone before you. Don't pay any attention to anyone who has walked with Jesus before you. This can happen through the arrogance of being a teenager or a young person, right? All you know is enough to know that you don't know anything. Okay, so the arrogance of youth and the apathy of old age. These are our problems when we think about who can speak into my life who's a little bit further down the path than I am. So if you want to fail at following Christ, don't learn anything from the faithfulness of those people who went before you. These people in chapter 11, they are yelling at you, hold on, Jesus is worth it. God will be faithful to you. He'll be faithful to his promises. They're like, we know you can't see it yet, but don't quit. Finish life with Jesus. Come on, get up. Take one more step today with him. Trust us because you can trust Jesus. There's an old movie with, with uh, um, Robin Williams, um, Dead Poet Society. 
great scene. He takes this, these young teenagers, impressionable, into an old hall, and they see these pictures of these men who have been at the school before them, and they're all dead. And he says, have you listened to what they, they're saying to you? He goes, lean in and listen, and you can hear them talking. And they lean into the pictures of these old, when they were young men, that they're all dead now. And he goes, carpe diem, seize the day. Hebrews 11 is our hall of dead believers. And they're not whispering, they're yelling, hold on to Jesus. We walked with him. We, we did it. We finished our race. Not perfectly, but you can too. Hold on to him. But if you want to fail, don't listen to anything. They think you're doing it for the, you're the first Christian who's ever walked with Jesus and just do it on your own. That's how you fail. Secondly, run with a lot of weight. Hold on to your anger. Hold on to your depression, your anxiety. Be, de- be defined by these things. Your bitterness, your regret, the abuses that have happened to you, your circumstances. Waste all your time and your energy pursuing goals that are about money and power. Get fat on Hulu and sports and exercise and nutrition. Notice how I use those things together. Make sure you hold on to what the values this world says are important, including its ideas about race and value and meaning. Never forgive, never forget, weigh yourself down. And you will fail to stay close to Jesus. Daily, when you think about picking something up in your life, you have to ask yourself the question, is this going to help me run? If I choose to carry this around with me, is this going to help me run? Third way to just fail. Stay entangled with sin. Entangled is a great word. It's like a web. You ever walk through a spider web? It's terrible. <laughs> You're trying to bat it off and everything. Stay entangled in the web of sin, the net of sin. Deceit and lies and manipulations and greed and lust and coveting and jealousy. Seek validation and purpose in your life from work and family and performance or being young and beautiful. Impose your version of Christian morals on everybody else and work hard to have God love you. Tell yourself there's no power or hope to overcome your brand of sin and just give in to your hopelessness. That's how you fail. Nobody wants that. Nobody is going to pursue those three things. And yet, don't we? Don't we? Isn't that why the author has to say, lay these things aside, get rid of them, put your eyes on Jesus? Because that's exactly what we do. We run in such a way that we don't win the race. Last thing, and man, I would have done a whole message on this, okay? Verse uh, 1, the very end of verse 1. Run, let us run with endurance the race that is set before you. You weren't born and then get saved, and then God goes, hey, my gosh, there's a racetrack here. What in the world? Maybe you should think about running. That is, that is not the way this works. If we take this idea that there's a race that's been set before us, that changes the game, I think, for us. That means before we were born... God has a race for you to run. And it's your race. Can I just say that? It's the race that God predetermined for you to run. And it's not like anybody else's race. There's some similarities. There's some overlap. But it's your race. 
It's the race that's been laid out for you. Don't get mad because it's hard. Right? I just, the other day, there was this like four-year-old kid, and his grandmother was pulling him in a wagon in my, on my street. This kid's like got a sun hat on and sunglasses, just hanging out. And his old lady's dragging him down the sidewalk in a wagon. That's not what goes on in our Christian lives, guys. Don't be angry because your race is hard. It's a race. Don't get mad because it's difficult. Don't be sad because it's not somebody else's race. I would really prefer to run that guy's race. Don't sit down because it's hard or because you've been left behind by somebody else. Run with endurance the race that God has given you. Mindy Sanders is running a race. Like one that I, I, I can't wrap my, heart, my, my head around. race got harder back in March again and some sweet friends gave her these shoes that's a weird gift for somebody with cancer isn't it (laughs) because Mindy said in a text to some people I'm going to run my race it says Exodus 14 14 on the back of her shoes Be still and let the Lord fight for you. That's her verse. That's her race. You have a race. Will you run it? Get your shoes. Put everything else aside. And let's run with the Lord. Father, thank you for this passage that speaks so clearly to us about our lives with you and about putting all these things aside and stop looking at everyone and everything around us and putting our hearts, our loves on places that just, they don't deserve it. Father God, I pray that we would run our race with you, that as we take the Lord's Supper today, that we'd be reminded to put our eyes on Jesus who gave his life for us came back from the dead for us, who lives in us now, and who says, run with me, put your eyes on me, trust me. God, I pray that we would have that kind of endurance, and we'd be faithful to you. Like all these people in chapter 11, turn our eyes toward Christ, put our eyes on the cross and the work that you've done for us, and run with you. Let's worship, and as we kind of conclude our worship time today, we'll come back, and uh, we'll take the Lord's